Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me? And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. So who am I? I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. And I know that hate will only win if people like me stand by and let it happen. So I want to be very clear right now. Call me whatever you want. I hope you brought in a few dollars. I hope it made you sleep good last night. I know who I am. I know what faith and service means and what it calls for in this moment. We will not let hate win. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Senator Mallory McMorrow, Democratic member of the Michigan State Senate, representing Michigan's 13th District, which is made up of Eastern Oakland County in the northern suburbs of Detroit. She first took office in the Michigan State Senate in January 2019 and is currently serving in her first term and is up for re-election this year. Prior to serving in the Michigan Senate, she spent time in the industries of product design, media, and advertising for companies such as Mazda, Mattel, Gawker Media, and Hearst. She gained national notoriety when she took to the Senate floor on April 19th to defend herself against absurdly false accusations from Republican State Senator Lana Tice, who in a fundraising email had accused Senator McMorrow of, quote, wanting to groom and sexualize kindergartners. Senator McMorrow's floor speech instantly went viral and garnered over 1 million views on social media just hours after it was posted. Senator McMorrow, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the speech. And I think it's one that probably had such a resounding response because it was clearly from the heart and it was such a clear and distinct takedown of what we're seeing. Now, look, I'm a former Republican. I haven't been one for years now. But I'd like to think that when I worked in that party, there was some idea of like a greater good. Now what we see is a descent into madness, for lack of a better way to put it, on the other side of the aisle. And so take us through the moment when you saw this to when you finally decided to get behind the lectern and make your statement. 
This moment didn't happen in a vacuum. So we've seen this rising rhetoric from QAnon pulled out into the mainstream. But this started a couple weeks ago when Senator Lana Tice gave the invocation to start Senate session. And usually it's a non-controversial intention setting, reminding us that we serve 10 million people of the state of Michigan and so on and so forth. She stood up and pleaded with God and the delivery was very dramatic. And she said that our children are under attack by dark forces that would have them see and know and hear things against their parents' will. And this was just after Florida's Don't Say Gay bill was signed into law. So we knew what she was referring to. So myself and a few colleagues walked off the floor. Didn't think that it was a huge protest, but she took issue with that. So I woke up. Monday morning a few weeks ago to the news that she had sent out a fundraising email for herself calling me out by name. She said, Senator Mallory McMorrow D. Snowflake, which almost gets the joke right, but said that I support grooming and sexualizing kindergartners, support pedophilia, and want eight-year-olds to believe that they're responsible for slavery. And I was gobsmacked. We don't represent the same part of the state. We don't have the same constituents. We're not opponents. But she decided to come after me. And I just sat in how awful that felt throughout the day. I'm a mom of a one-year-old. She's a mom. This was a mom calling another mom. Just a gruesome, terrible, vile thing. She accused me of molesting children. And I realized that however bad I felt for a day is how terrible it must feel every day if you are a member of the LGBTQ community who is called a pedophile just for existing. So I knew I wanted to say something and I wanted to say something publicly. So I wrote a lot down. I crossed a lot out. Uh, I wanted to get out of the Democratic versus Republican mudslinging. So I wrote a lot about the hypocrisy of the Republican Party that I, I erased. And we got to the speech that I gave on the floor the next day. And part of wanting to give a speech was she also accused me of being a social media troll. And there's nothing I say on Twitter that I wouldn't say to somebody's face. You know, you noted, you know, right before we're, we started recording, you live two miles north of Detroit, suburban mom. And so in your interactions with your friends and neighbors, when they saw that, if they saw it, if they heard about it, what was their sense of it? Was that the same sort of being aghast? I don't know where Tice is from, but what did your community feel about both what she called you and your response? I think my community is tired. I spoke intentionally to other white suburban moms like me who I know are really burned out after the past few years and COVID restrictions and schools being closed and having to balance everything, but also knowing that they don't hate other people, that there's this kind of intentional strategy that we saw with Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia of really kind of trying to speak for white moms like me to say, you know what, Democrats have failed you, therefore you have to vote for us, we're going to protect you. But I know a lot of moms in my community don't feel this way. And that's a lot of what I wanted to go to. So I think they were disgusted. I give a weekly live stream. I talked about the invocation that she gave and people agreed that that was inappropriate. And the response from my district, from the speech has just been overwhelming. The number of particularly moms who have walked up to me and said, I'm so burned out over the past couple of years, but you gave me a kick in the ass and I feel like I can fight again. And that's amazing. That's what we need. Well, I think that's right. And I think that that's, again, one of the reasons why your remarks were so galvanizing is that we hear so much noise. We hear so much ugliness. And once in a while, and not often enough, 
do we hear someone like you who sort of is able to cut through it? You know, look, you didn't poll test your remarks. You didn't focus group them. You made thoughtful edits to an otherwise, I think, passionate speech, but you went out there and you gave it sort of damn the torpedoes. Let's go do this. And I think that that's what we need more of on what I would call the pro-democracy side of the argument, which is don't get hung up in this and that. Like, go out, tell you how people, how you feel. This is what the effect is. Exactly. Don't be afraid to stand up against what is just it's flagrant hate and lying. And there's a difference between, you know, I know Democrats always get worried about weeding into social issues and are we focused too much? They're just lying. It's lies and it's hate. And I think we can't lose if those of us who want this to work, and I'll be the first to say, I represent Mitt Romney's hometown. I represent a lot of moderate Republicans who probably voted for me the first time around who don't see this Republican Party as the one that they grew up in. And I had a local you know, Republican elected official text me to say as much, to say thank you. You know, this is not the party that I remember. But, you know, is Senator, it seems that your cohort, and frankly, my wife's cohort, suburban moms, suburban white moms, I should say, be more specific, whether or not it's this pedophilia thing, whether or not it's school board craziness, whether or not it's critical race theory, it all appears to be aimed at, and this is what we've said to our friends in the Democratic Party, is they are trying to scare suburban white moms into believing that Democrats are trying to indoctrinate their children into something, like this Tice woman said. When the truth is, most folks, especially after the pandemic, they're looking for some sort of normalcy. They're looking for some sort of quiet. They want the best for their kids, but that doesn't mean they they want the best for their kids at the expense of anybody else's. There is the, you know, the old trope of a rising tide lifts all boats, but in the Republican frame now, everything is a zero-sum game. If those people are successful, by definition, then you, a grieved white person, are losing. It's 100% accurate, and it is trying to create wedges where they didn't even exist. I mean, this entire schools versus parents nonsense is exactly that nonsense. So I grew up, you know, going to public school. My mom was a homeroom mom, super active, went on our field trips. If I got in trouble in school, she knew within five <laughs> minutes. Right. And my teachers tended to know I was in more trouble at home than I was in at school. So my teachers went easy on me. And you talk to any teacher and a teacher wants a good relationship with the parents so they know what's going on at home. You know, parents want to know what's going on in school. It's a it takes a village kind of situation. And they're creating this narrative that somehow your teachers are trying to indoctrinate your kids and force them to be something they're not. So Senator Tice went on a local podcast after my speech kind of went viral and took off and she doubled and tripled down. And she basically said, because white kids now are taught to believe that they are the oppressor, that the only way to strip the oppressor name is to become gay. And that is what's happening in schools. It is this crazy idea that the second you send your kid out the door, everybody is after your kids and we have to stop them. And they tried to paint me as one of them because I dared to stand up with people who were under attack. What you can see from the right wing outrage machine, the world that they create and the world that they want voters in particular to inhabit is one of their making. The reason why she doubled and tripled down was because your words cut through the reality distortion field and actually reached human beings. And they were like, that's how I feel. And that's what we've seen with whether or not it was Donald Trump with COVID a couple of years ago, or whether or not we saw it with Tucker Carlson earlier this year with Ukraine, was that when reality intercedes in the bubble in which they want 
their people, their voters to occupy, and they want that bubble by osmosis to draw other people in, they must attack and they must be even more vicious because someone like you, who they know represents the very group of people that they need to sway, you are dangerous to their efforts. And that's why she doubles and triples down. That's why now, you know, you are not someone who's standing up for your values, for your family, for your community, but someone who actually is in fact running a pizza parlor with a pedophile ring in the basement, right? Like that'll be the next thing. And it is. And I have friends who moved to Michigan from D.C. They were regulars at Comet Ping Pong. So, you know, when her email went out, that was their first phone call to me was, are you okay? And is somebody going to come and try to kill you? Like there's no thought to the consequences. It is this fight, especially in Michigan, in the Michigan Republican Party right now, to see who can say the most insane, crazy, fringe thing and get away with it. And they're going to keep getting away with it because it's been a winning strategy so far, unless more people like me stand up to stop it. I was up in Michigan back in December, but I've been to California, not surprisingly, Arizona, Nevada, other places. And what I've heard from a lot of folks, whether or not it's political activists, the donor community or individual voters, is this thing that you talk about, which was this sort of exhaustion. It's, you know, two years of COVID. There's a war on in Europe that maybe we're not personally, individually involved in, but it's out there every day. You've got economic factors. There's just this sort of, you know, everybody's tired. Everybody's worn out. Everybody's wrung out. So how do we convince those people, to your point about the women that came up to you, how do we take that message that you said and like tell other people now is the time? Because it's an old trope to say that democracy is not a spectator sport. There are more of us, which I think are pro-democracy and decent, but it doesn't matter if we don't show up. And this is how democracies go down, not at the end of a gun, but at the end of apathy. Exactly. It's really easy to motivate with fear. And I think that that has been the strategy that we're fighting against, right? If you are convinced that everybody else who isn't exactly like you is trying to somehow ruin your kids, then it's easy to get motivated. On the other side, I fundamentally believe that sort of across the spectrum, there are good policy solutions to economic issues and kitchen table issues. We're not even going to be able to get to a point where people can hear that and acknowledge that if there's so much hateful noise. So I think step one, and this is what I, I tried to say is, this is a choice about who we are as a state, as a community, as a country. This is about our identity. And if we don't stand up and take it back and say, we care about our families and our communities, we don't hate other people. This is America. We are diverse. And this is where, you know, the American dream started. My hope is that that motivates people to get up and say, yes, we have to fight back because otherwise this turns into the reason that I ran for office in the first place was a video that went viral of a student chanting, build that wall, of a group of students chanting, build that wall at another student at Royal Oak Middle School where I voted in 2016. And this many years later, I think everybody, rightfully so, burned out, tired. We watched the inauguration of President Biden and we kind of all breathed a sigh of relief that we're gonna get back to normal now. It's not normal. It hasn't gone away. You know, I think Trump may have brought it to the surface, but it's certainly not gone. And, and we can't rest and be on the sidelines waiting for it to get back to normal. Well, no. And, and one of our senior advisors, Stuart Stevens, who, like me, worked in Republican politics for many years, including for previously Governor Romney at the highest levels of his campaigns, said his fear was that Donald Trump didn't invent the Republican Party, but that he revealed it. That, you know, for those of us who were on the quote unquote establishment side, we were always in the minority in our own party. We just didn't know it. And then one day 
Trump drag these people out of the, uh, as I say, the zombies out of the woods. And suddenly here we are. But let me say this. I was thinking about this the other day about, you know, how we get people to fight. And with all due respect to your Democratic colleagues, like we don't pull a lot of punches. I was just thinking about trying to reason with people is hard. And politics, as you know, is an emotional game. That's why your remarks were so impactful. I just I was thinking about it in the context of what we see out of the Ukrainian people, which is when the Ukrainians saw the Russian tanks coming, they didn't look at the tanks and say, let me tell you why you shouldn't come here. Let me explain to you why it's a bad idea for you to come here. They got their rifles out. They aimed their javelins and they fought back. Right. Because it's their country. It was their families. It's their cities. And I think that if any of us ever had one ounce of the modicum of the bravery that we've seen from the Ukrainian people, from the people on the front line to the people who are hiding in a steel factory to President Zelensky, you know, we would all be better off. But it's one of those things where it's like we can't take it for granted anymore. Right. If you're not going to stand up and fight for it, if you're not going to be willing to say, I will stand here athwart this line and put myself and, you know, my beliefs on the line then it'll just go away and we won't even notice, right? It'll just be like in 2022 or 2024, we'll look back, oh, I guess that was the last real election we had. And I don't think we can or should allow that to just sort of go by because we were, quote, tired. No, of course not. And, you know, if I could bottle the energy of the woman who said, put these seeds in your pocket so when you die, there will be flowers that, that grow in your place. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the Ukrainians have a penchant for poetry, the likes of which I've never seen. It's exactly that. And I think the counter, you know, part of me wanting to talk in my speech about my daughter was exactly this, because I think that is motivating. I want a world for my daughter where she is welcome and seen, where she meets people who are different than her, where she's prepared for the world. She understands that there's a lot of different types of people and she needs to figure out how to interact with them. And I think that's the counter, because on the current Republican side, it is trying to convince you that your kids are under attack, that there's a Satanist cabal of pedophiles, that, you know, they're trying to turn them into something that they're not or they're going to learn about slavery and somehow feel bad about themselves. So go on the counter. What world do we want for our kids? Because that's not the world I want for our kids. And I think that is really motivating, especially for, again, suburban white moms who are that movable kind of voting block that has been written about that led to these Republican wins across the country. And you can be as tired as you want, but if you know that your kids are under threat, you're going to wake the F up. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about the education piece, because I worked in California politics, which means that the teachers union out there reminded me where I lived in the world several times. But I feel like the Republican Party has used teachers unions, which are far from perfect, but there's no such thing as a perfect institution, as a cudgel against public education. But now they've sort of passed that and they're taking on the idea of education itself. I don't remember who said it, but, oh, I think it's Epictetus. Education is the only thing that no one can ever steal from you. And it is foundational, whether or not it is pre-K, elementary education, middle school, high school, trade school, college, whatever it is, it is foundational to your point about the American dream. And now it seems like whether or not it's in a place like Kansas where they've cut education funding to the bone or Oklahoma or in Texas now where they're trying to say, OK, well, you know, we're going to see exactly who we're going to fund public education for. What's your sense having been in the legislature now? Do they just use it as a political tool? Do they really want stupid kids? I mean, they really want to destroy public education. This is the home of Betsy DeVos. So, I mean, this is the entire strategy to upend public education in favor of, you know, and this is not to say all charters don't have a place, but in Michigan, they're, they kind of run rampant. 
in place of private ed. You know, there's a ballot initiative now to create a voucher program, which is unconstitutional in the state of Michigan, led by Betsy DeVos, as if she needs another yacht. You know, I, I don't know. You know, I've talked to parents who really buy in and you hit it on the head that first it's talking about teachers unions. But now there are people who are just flat out saying teachers are indoctrinating kids direct. It doesn't matter if they're part of a union. It's just teachers are bad, which is unbelievable that we have gotten to that place where teachers are somehow the enemy. We have groups of parents who are organized by Moms for Liberty groups who are showing up at school boards, not even of schools that their kids go to, to terrorize school boards, to terrorize these teachers. And just as an aside, serving on a school board, not a great gig in the best of times. No, it's a volunteer job. <laughs> You're not getting It's a full-time volunteer for. job where you have to deal with people like me all the time. <laughs> all right? the time. But yeah, I mean, you know, Michigan... We have some of the best universities in the entire world. You know, people flock from everywhere to go to the University of Michigan to get a postdoctoral degree. Are you a Wolverine? No, I am a Notre Dame grad, which is not very popular in Michigan. No, I would say not. (laughs) But we do have colleagues who just want to completely cut funding to K-12, higher ed. And I cannot wrap my head around we are the home of the auto industry. It is a global industry. And we are just going to have an entire generation of kids who are not prepared to enter the world and be competitive in the workforce if they get their way. I mean, I guess that's the other part, too, is charter schools is just one more sort of trope, right? Like you cannot replace the public education system in a state of 10 million people with charter schools. You could try. I guess it would probably take 30 or 40 years. And so that's my biggest concern is I'm afraid that what the Republican Party, as it's continued its devolution, is turning into people who just like, how quickly can we turn people into sheep? Donald Trump said himself, I love the poorly educated. And it's saying the quiet part out loud. But now the policies are moving to actually make that reality. We have to get back to a place where understanding education is a public good. It is good for us as the state of Michigan to have every child have a guaranteed education because that is our future workforce. There's also a place for charter schools, private schools, parochial schools, if you want to choose another option. But the idea that you're just going to systematically uproot public education in favor of all those other things is going to leave a lot of kids out. And that hurts our state. You know, I, I think I heard some quote from Laura Ingram saying, you know, if you don't like it, move. Well, if that's the attitude, we're going to have people moving out of every state. Talk about a way to destroy your economy if everybody suddenly moves. The right always likes if you don't like it, move is always a a silliness, too, because, you know, they claim the flag. They claim the country. And I feel like those of us who consider ourselves patriotic Americans who tear up when I hear the national anthem at a baseball game haven't done enough to take that flag back. That's a huge part of why I gave the speech I gave, because for too long, I feel like we've ceded ground on patriotism, family, faith, if that's important to you. And, And I wanted to reclaim my own identity but also say that we're the ones who are patriotic. We care about this country. We care about our families and our communities. And the idea that people like Senator Tice and people like her, you know, when she claims to do this for quote unquote parental rights, it's not all parents. It's not all kids. And that's, you know, what she's not saying out loud. Let me talk about that because there's a lot of discussion, rightfully so, around rights right now. That's the thing is, you know, we can talk about the Roe v. Wade decision that came to light you know, so there's the rolling back of Roe v. Wade. Now we see in a state like Missouri, the outlawing of contraception, IUDs, these sorts of things. But the problem is, I think when we're talking about individual liberty, which used to be a Republican talking point, 
is we get stuck in the logistics of the laws and not the values of them. We saw this with the draft SCOTUS opinion this week. I think everybody knew it was coming. We all knew this is what this Supreme Court would do. But I do feel like it always felt really far off until we saw that draft opinion. I was at an event in 2019 with Dana Nessel, our attorney general, where she said, you know, Roe is going to fall. And I remember the headlines at the time that she was overreacting, that it was fear mongering, but she was right. And getting into reclaiming things like patriotism, liberty. I stood on a stage this week in front of the Capitol and said, I'm here as a senator and a mom because I was able to decide when I was ready. Not the state, not the country. I had access to contraception. You know, I am a full independent woman. And however you feel about abortion, we're getting to a place now where women are going to be treated just as vessels for reproduction. If it's stripping away access to contraception and abortion and all of that, which is happening in state legislatures around the country, I think a lot of us have to get a lot louder about what individual liberty and community, you know, how are you an individual and how do you participate in a community and what does that mean? It's also interesting because you saw another thing from Justice Amy Coney Barrett saying like, we need to keep up the supply of babies. The supply of infants. Oh, yeah, the infant supply, which is like, if you're the party of life, now you're commoditizing people to basically be automatons. I don't really care about you. I don't care about your free will. I don't care about any of that. You know, I really just need you to have more kids because I need more teachers. I need more soldiers, whatever. I mean, it's really like mid-1930s Germany kind of stuff, where the more kids you had, the more benefits you got. Yeah, it was really bizarre. So I, you know, I was pregnant a little over a year ago, and I distinctly remembered there's some of my Republican colleagues who just didn't really talk to me that much before I had flipped a district. So I was kind of enemy number one for a while. I'm not particularly shy. But then when I was pregnant, they suddenly checked in pretty regularly and asked how I was doing and how it was going. And it sunk in that suddenly I mattered to them because I was fulfilling my purpose. You know, my purpose is to be a mom, not a colleague, not an equal. That just made me, I think, even more firm in my pro-choice beliefs now. And I'm happy to have the difficult conversations with people because my last name is McMorrow and I went to Notre Dame. So not surprisingly, it's the first question when I knock on people's doors is how do you feel about abortion? And we have to talk about it, about independence and choice and who gets to decide when women don't have rights as individuals. But don't you think that some of the debate we've had has frankly done a disservice to the seriousness of the issue. Oh, yeah. Because it is so, A, personal, and B, so nuanced. It is. So we had, there was legislation moving a couple of years ago to ban DNC procedures. So the common procedure for a later term abortion. And there's a couple constituents who I brought to Lansing. They were married. They got pregnant. They wanted to have a kid, you know, got to the 20-week appointment, and there was no college informing. You know, it was just a horrific any wrong move would break the skull. And the doctor advised terminating the pregnancy so that she could get pregnant again. It was, if you don't do this, the impact could be absolutely horrific. So I brought them to Lansing and I wanted them to meet with some of my colleagues. And to exactly your point, I introduced them to one of my colleagues who, to her credit, listened, listened to their story, and then said to me, you know, it's really difficult to legislate this issue because every situation is different. And I said, Yes, exactly. 
trying to put an arbitrary date or a time or a situation is not going to work when we need to have a more honest conversation. I was raised Catholic. I think if everybody is on the same page about we want to reduce the number of abortions, let's have that conversation. Which has happened on the natural anyway. Yeah. Abortions are their lowest rate in history. And now 70 percent of abortions are from people who already have kids. So it's families. Families are making this decision. But yeah, I do feel like it immediately retreats to, you know, the camp who's just screaming abortion is murder and the camp that's just screaming kind of abortion for everybody. And we have to have the conversation about this is a choice between a family or a woman and her doctor. And that's it. You know, the government has no place in this decision. You know, as soon as that decision came down, there seemed to be a little too much whistling to Election Day on, oh, this is going to absolutely drive turnout for Democrats, you know, for suburban white women. You know, thank you, Republicans, for doing this. And I think that that's one, probably, again, not taking the issue seriously enough. But secondly, also, I think the ability for us as Americans to concentrate on something for more than like five minutes at a time is not realistic. So I guess my question is, what advice would you have for your colleagues as you're looking forward to August primary and then a November general election? about how not to take things for granted, because that's my concern was like, well, you say this, it could, but don't assume that it will. Well, and I think it's exactly that. Don't take anything for granted. It's easy to kind of point and chuckle at the Michigan GOP when it just seems like it's imploding from the inside. I think three or four of the top candidates for governor on the Republican side might just get kicked off the ballot because they couldn't get enough signatures and there was a whole signature fraud ring. But I'm even saying to my colleagues, we can't just assume that that's going to take care of itself, right? Like we have to work just as hard every single day and talk about issues like they matter to people. This is sort of my frustration whenever people talk about Roe is a good example of what it means for Democrats in the election. These are people's lives. And I think that, you know, my constituents want some emotion and want to feel like you feel what they're feeling. And if we don't show that and we're just like, oh, yeah, no, it's going to help drive out numbers, we're going to lose people because they don't see that the people who are elected to represent them actually care about this at all. That's what I was going to say. When you said it like you just said it, it sounds craven and cynical. Yeah, it does. Because it is, I guess. <laughs> and it's a weird thing when people ask me, oh, what does this mean for Democrats? And I get it. I'm in this space it is a numbers. More people have to vote for you than vote for them. But it just to me, and I think part of the reason that I gave the speech that I gave is these are people's lives. And I frankly don't care what it means for Democrats or Republicans. I want to be able to go to sleep at night feeling like I tried to stand up for people. Let me ask you that. Do you think that your Republican colleagues, how do you think they sleep? I try to figure that out almost every day. It is bizarre for me working with people who I feel like compartmentalize their lives. Like I feel like they have sort of a work character and then they go home and have lives and they sleep just fine. I would never be able to do that. My work is who I am and what I do. And I've stayed up late nights, way too many nights since getting elected. So I think they can sleep OK, but I don't know how they do it. Let me ask you one last thing before I let you go is how do you see Michigan this year? I mean, from our perspective, Michigan is ground zero for American democracy, whether or not that's Governor Whitmer, whether or not that's General Nessel, whether or not that's Secretary Benson, and obviously folks like you in the legislature. How do you see the fight shaping up? I don't want to give you too many X's and O's, but give us a sense of how you think things are looking. Michigan is everything. How Michigan goes, the country's going to go. We have independent redistricting for the first time. This is the dry run to see how people will actually vote when given a fair chance. And Michigan is a state that elected, you know, the amazing women that you said at the top and also has more homegrown militia activity than any other state in the country all at once. 
So I feel good. I feel good knowing that, you know, I represent what was a Republican district, but there are more people who care about democracy and making it work than don't. We just have to keep that energy up and not assume that it's going to work out because the strategy on the other side is to just wear you out until you quit. And we can't quit. You're absolutely right. It's a steamroller, right? They just want to grind you down. The folks in your district, is there something in particular that is of concern to them when you talk to them? And has anything surprised you about those concerns? You know, I think it's the concerns of a lot of people. School is a big one. And I think getting back to school and making sure we could stay safely back at school, you know, talking to constituents who are like, my kids don't care about wearing a mask if that's what they have to do because it has unicorns on it and they think it's cool. And if it means they can go see their friends, like, great. But getting back to normal is the biggest concern that I hear from constituents. I had a woman who said to me, she's like, I just want it to be boring again. I don't want to feel like I have to watch the news every day. I want you guys to like go do what you do and for me to get on with my life. So I think that's the number one thing is getting out of this like just nonstop chaos dumpster fire, getting back to normal elections and democracy and Mike Lindell not being held up as an election expert by some people anymore. Right. Well, no, I think that's right, is that the beauty of being an American was that you hired people like you to do the work and that we had a general idea that when we went to bed at night, folks like Senator McMorrow probably had our best interests at heart. On both sides, Republican or Democrat, right, exactly. you could disagree with them on some things, but they cared about the same things I care about. It's going to keep going. Well, Senator, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you or your office on social media? I am on Twitter at Mallory McMorrow, pretty easy, on Facebook at McMorrow for Michigan. And if you just Google Mallory McMorrow when you're a constituent, you will find the office of the 13th District, and we're happy to help you out. And as always, gang, you can always find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Senator McMorrow, I want to thank you for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.